Our passage for this morning is 1 John chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here at the Parkway Church. Uh, Here at Parkway, we generally don't do mom-centered sermons for Mother's Day or dad-centered sermons for Father's Day or Irish-centered sermons for St. Patrick's Day. We uh, generally just keep trucking through books of the Bible besides uh, Christmas and, uh, and Easter. And so today we find ourselves in 1 John. In fact, the 41st and final sermon in, uh, in the book of 1 John. And so next week we'll start on 2 John, followed by 3 John, and then of course 4 John. Just kidding, we're going to skip 4 John and we're going to go straight into Psalms and we'll be in that for the rest of the year. But we're finishing 1 John today. Coincidentally, uh, last year on Mother's Day we actually finished the book of Romans. So that's kind of our little Parkway tradition, our Parkway gift to our mothers, not flowers or uh, chocolate or something like that. But instead we finally finished books that it feels like we've been in forever. So this morning we will be in chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. And as you gather your family and your coffee and your Bibles and so forth, I want to tell you a story involving my mom. Now, some of you know that I have a passion for international missions. Uh, I've loved to travel uh, throughout the world, but one of my favorite places to go is Africa. And so I've uh, I've had the chance to go to South Sudan and to uh, Uganda and to Kenya. And on a couple of those trips, I was able to actually bring my mom. And so she worked uh, with some others in uh, some of the orphanages that we partnered with. And then I was able to do some pastor training. And on our first trip uh, together over there, uh, we decided to do a little bit of safari. So we wanted to see some uh, animals. And, uh, and so my mom, myself, a couple of other friends, uh, we left the rest of the team at the end of the trip and we went into northern Uganda to a place called Murchison Falls, which is right along the Nile River. In fact, this particular area of the Nile River is known for having the highest collection, the highest concentration of Nile crocodiles in all of Africa. And so one of my buddies, while we were there, asked one of the workers, said, how far do you think I could make it if I were to jump in the river and try to swim across it? And the the worker looked at him and said, no more than just a couple of meters. Now I'm fascinated by things that could potentially kill me. So snakes and serial killers and cholesterol and all of these sorts of things. And so I wanted to see the crocodiles. And, uh, and so we decided we were going to take a, a little bit of a, uh, a, a boat ride and go and see some of the wildlife there on the river. And it was incredible. We saw lions and hyena and elephants and giraffe. And uh, we even got chased by a, a hippo uh, in the water. But the highlight of, the, uh, of that particular trip for me was the opportunity that we had. We came around a bend in the river and we saw this floating carcass of a hippo being fed upon by 40 to 50 massive crocodiles. I mean, the river was literally riddled with these reptiles, some of them uh, up to 20 feet long. And as we're there, uh, surrounded by all of these, uh, these animals that can kill us, uh, there were uh, a, a number of German tourists 
on our boats. And one of these German tourists, he got up and he moved from one side of the boat to the other side of the boat. And if you've ever been on a particularly small boat, you'll note that whenever somebody does that, it can cause the boat to list or to lean. And we began to lean quite heavily in the water as a result of this, this redistribution of weight. And I have never before in my life heard people scream with such intensity what I can only assume were German obscenities at this guy telling him to sit down. Why were they so passionate that he sit down? Well, obviously, because we are in the, this uh, river surrounded by all of these crocodiles. And the shoreline is also filled with hippos. So there was no chance whatsoever if we go into that water that we were going to survive unless, of course, we could do like they do in the cartoons and kind of use the crocodile's heads as stepping stones, which I'm sure is entirely possible since, after all, I can do all things through a verse quoted out of context. So here we are in this murky water that's riddled with uh, crocodiles, all of these different things that could possibly kill me, but I wasn't afraid. Honestly, I wasn't anxious, I wasn't scared. Now bear with me, as I have often said here, I've not hid it from you, that I have this weird, I have this irrational fear of lizards. And yet here I am surrounded by some of the largest lizard-like species in the entire world, and I'm not afraid. Well, why wasn't I afraid? Because I was in a concrete bottom boat with a steel gate over the windows. Had I been floating in the water, had I been on one of those inflatable rafts or had I been on a, pla a, a kayak or something like that, I would have been absolutely terrified. I would have been paralyzed, but I wasn't. I was safe and secure in a boat that was strong enough to protect me from whatever was possibly endangering me. And that reminds me of the passage that we're going to look at uh, this morning. Last week, Jared did a great job of describing the condition of this present world. The final phrase in our passage was that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And that seems like something that should terrify us. That seems like something that should make us anxious and stress us out and lead us to despair and disturb us. And yet it doesn't. Well, why doesn't it? Because as we'll read this morning, we are united to something. Indeed, we're in something, in something far more secure than a concrete bottom boat. We're in the eternal son of God himself. So let's pray and then we'll dive in together. I wanna ask you first just to pray for yourself wherever you are, they're sitting in your house or in the car that you would pray for yourself, that the Lord would give you understanding and eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that would be uh, quick to treasure his word. And then will you pray that for anyone who might be with you? Or if you're all by yourself, would you just pray that for others who might be watching or listening to this? That, would, that, that God would give us collectively even though in this season we're not meeting together, that we would have this corporate sense of desire for his word. And then lastly, would you pray for me, that the Lord would give me boldness and faithfulness to proclaim his word rightly. So Father, we 
are grateful that you are a faithful God who gives good gifts to your children. And so we ask that you would help us this morning as we consider your word, that you would allow us to treasure it. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. And so we ask for your help with confidence and expectation in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin at 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. I want to read that. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And we're going to start with the first uh, half of that, which is, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Now you know this, but any time we read a passage, we should always ask about that passage's relationship to the larger context of the book. What is the flow, in particular in this text, from verse 19 that we looked at last week to verse 20 that we're looking at this week? So let's read those together so you get a sense of that flow. 1 John 5, 19 through 20. We know that we are from the God Sorry, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is uh, true and we are in him who is true. Now stay there for a second in your Bible and look at that first word, and. It's the beginning of our passage this morning. It's the first word in verse 20. That word translated and in Greek is the conjunction day. What's interesting about the use of this particular conjunction day, translated here as and, in, the, in its usage in 1 John is that this is the, one of the few places in 1 John where it's actually translated as and. In fact, in the overwhelming majority of places that you see this particular word, it's not translated as and, but rather as but, as a marker of contrast. Contrast, And I actually think that it makes more sense to read it as contrast here in this passage as well. In which case the flow of the text from verses 19 through 20 would, instead of how we just read it, it would instead read like this. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but, but we know that the Son of God has come. In other words, the rule of the evil one should have this tendency to fuel terror and anxiety and despair. But, but the coming of the Son of God provides comfort and hope and assurance. This is kind of like if someone were to say, the world lies in the power of Thanos, but the Avengers have come. The world lies in the power of Lex Luthor, but Superman has come. The world lies in the power of Voldemort, sorry for saying his name, but Harry Potter has come. Or more specifically, the world lies in the power of Hitler, but the allies have come. That's the effect of the coming of the Son of God. He has come, and that advent, that coming, should be the foundation of our comfort and our encouragement. And as his first advent is the source of our assurance, his second is the source for our future hope. Though that's not the point of this particular passage. Not only has Christ come, but he will come again. We talked about that last week, that Normandy has happened. At that moment, at the moment that the beach is taken, the die is cast. 
the reign of the Third Reich is certain to come to an end, even though the Allies still have to march on Berlin. But the outcome, the victory, is assured. It's certain. Likewise, Christ has come. The victory is assured. We simply wait for the day of consummation when all of his enemies will be subjected to him and even death itself will die. So the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ is good news, but that's not all the good news that we see here in our passage this morning because it says, not only has he come, but he has given us understanding. This word understanding in Greek is dianoia. It's also uh, somewhat interesting uh, in the fact that it only uh, um, um, is going to come up about 12 times uh, in the New Testament. So we see this word dianoia 12 times in the New Testament, but even though it's only used these 12 times, there's a, almost a three-act play that we see in the usage of this word in the New Testament. So let's walk through these three acts of this use of this term, dianoia, the word that's translated as understanding here in this passage. And we'll see that in other passages, it can sometimes be translated as understanding, sometimes as in mind. And so in act one, we'll call this the command, that we have a command that we are to love God with our minds, with our understanding. So in the gospels, you read Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your dianoia, with all of your mind. So that's the command. That's the expectation. That's the responsibility that we have that we would love God with our minds. And that's great, but then we get to act two, another way that you see this word used in the New Testament. And we'll call act two the problem. That we're commanded to love God with our minds, but the problem is that our minds are corrupted. Theologians call this the noetic effects of the fall. Noetic is a word related to the Greek word for mind. So we're commanded to love God with our minds and with our understanding, but we're broken in that regard. And thus we're unable to fulfill this command that God has given us. So let's look at some of the places that we see this word used in this sense. Ephesians 2, 3 among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, the dianoia, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Colossians 1.21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So act one, there is a command that we would love God with our minds. But in act two, we see that we're completely unable to fulfill that command. Our minds are corrupted, they're broken, they're bent, they're perverted, they're distorted, they're stained and tainted by sin. So are we simply out of luck? Well, no, because we also have act three, provision or solution. Quoting Jeremiah's promise of a new covenant, the author of Hebrews writes this, Hebrews 10, 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. So in the new covenant, in the gospel, we receive not only new hearts, but also new minds. And what's the purpose of that new mind? Not so that you would be super awesome at Sudoku, 
or jeopardy or trivial pursuit, but rather so that you might know him who is true. That's John's point here. In other words, you cannot know him who is true unless you have this new covenant promise, unless you've had the futility of your mind overcome by the glory of the gospel. The Bible is very explicit about this, that you cannot truly know or trust or treasure Christ apart from his grace in giving you a new heart and a new mind. John in particular is gonna make that abundantly clear in his gospel. We've talked about this passage before, John 3, 19 through 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. I don't know if you were paying attention to that. I don't know if you noticed how devastating that critique of humanity is. But what John has just said is all humanity, Christ excluded, hates God, refuses to come to God. That our minds are so corrupted, that our hearts are so distorted that we naturally resist him, that we naturally rebel, that we naturally dislike him. That Indeed, it's stronger than that. We don't just simply dislike him, we despise him. So what's the hope? Well, Jesus has already made that explicitly clear in the immediate context there uh, in the Gospel of John chapter 3. John 3, 3, Jesus answered him. Him there is is Nicodemus. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what's your hope? Your hope is that you are born again. We've talked a lot about this concept of being born again or being born of God. We see that all the time throughout 1 John. The theological term for this is regeneration, which is an act of God's grace whereby the Spirit of God grants us a new nature consisting of a new heart, a new will, and a new mind. So not only has Christ come, but he's given us understanding. He's given us this new mind. And that's super important because this means that Christ's coming is good news for us. In other words, apart from this reality, apart from this understanding, Christ's coming, Christ's advent is actually really bad news for us. You see, whether or not Christ's coming is good news for you depends entirely on who you are. Christ's coming in and of itself is not good news for those who are not born of God. For those who haven't been born of God, Christ's coming uh, isn't a message of redemption, but rather of judgment. When we say the allies have come is good news, that's good news for the French, but it's not good news for the Nazis. If you say that David has come, that's good news for Israel, but not for the Philistines. Likewise, the Son of God has come is only good news for those who are born of God. So not only has Christ come, but he has given us understanding so that we might know him. Let's keep going. 1 John 5, 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The first thing I want to do with this passage is I wanna draw your attention to all of these pronouns, he and him and his Everything else about this section is somewhat self-explanatory, but these pronouns, 
actually make this section somewhat difficult because there seems to be this fluidity and ambiguity in regards to whether or not John is talking about the Father or the Son. When he says he, or when he says him, or when he says his, is he talking about the Father there or the Son? And it seems that he moves back and forth. As we've uh, noted throughout 1 John, there are things that we might find a bit frustrating about this book, if we're honest, not that I would expect us to be honest in church, but it can be somewhat frustrating that John doesn't write with the forensic precision of Paul. John's writing is much more poetic. Paul writes in a very sort of uh, linear sense. He makes a point, he exhausts the argument, he deals with any objections, and then he moves on. We'll see that as we uh, look at the book of 1 Corinthians starting in 2021, hopefully. But John doesn't do that. Uh, Paul kind of writes more like a lawyer. It's, it's very uh, scholarly and very linear, whereas John writes more like a singer-songwriter or something like that. He's much more lyrical and cyclical. Both are inspired. Neither is inherently better or worse. They're just different. But we see John's lyrical, poetic style in his portrait of Trinitarianism here. We're in the Father, but we're also in the Son, because the Son and the Father mutually indwell. We've talked about that a number of times in 1 John. John will write that we're in Christ and that Christ is in us and the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. Again, this poetic depiction of what is called mutual indwelling. So if we're in the Father, then we're also in the Son because the Son is in the Father. It's kind of like saying, I'm in Texas and therefore I'm in the USA because Texas is in the USA. At least, uh, at least until we inevitably uh, secede and become our own union uh, republic again. Until then, if you're in Texas, then you're in the U.S. Likewise, if you're in the Son, then you're also in the Father. You can't be in the Son without being in the Father. By the way, you also can't be in the Father without being in the Son, which is kind of where the USA and Texas illustration break down. Technically, you could be in America without being in Texas. I don't know why you'd want to be, but it's technically, theoretically possible. But that's not true of the Father and the Son. To be in one is to be in the other. And so what is true of the Father is also true of the Son in regards to his divine attributes. If the Father is true God, then as we've seen throughout 1 John, Christ, the Son, must also be true God. If eternal life is found in the Father, it must also be found in the Son. As we uh, have read from the Nicene Creed, the Son is not merely like God, or he's not merely similar to God. He is homoousia. He's of the same nature, of the same essence as the Father. The Son is God from God. He is light from light. He is true God from true God. And so speaking of being in the Father and in the Son, that's another benefit of the coming of Christ. That the Son has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him, but that's of no use if we're not in him. That's not good news. For example, if I'm lost at sea and you're there with me and we're on our little life raft or whatever, and you yell out that there is an approaching boat or an approaching ship, that knowledge in and of itself does me no good if that ship doesn't pull me into the boat. I'm left in even more despair as I see my hope float past. A ship can come, I know that it has come, and yet if I'm not in that ship, I'm not helped. 
Well, thankfully, not only has the Son come, not only has he given us this knowledge, but we are also in him. This could not be more important. We've talked about this doctrine dozens and dozens and dozens of times. This doctrine that's called union with Christ. We've talked about it so often because it's so important. John Calvin says this is of the highest degree of importance. John Murray calls it, quote, the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. In layman's terms, union with Christ is kind of a big deal. But for some reason, though it is of the highest importance, it's relatively ignored. Growing up in church, I never once heard this doctrine. Even after I was saved at the age of 23, it was years before I first saw this. But now that I see it, I can't unsee it. It's kind of like staring at an optical illusion and you're not quite sure what you're looking for and then finally you actually see it. And no matter what, you can't not see it. So theologian Anthony Hockema says this, once you have your eyes opened to this concept of union with Christ, you will find it almost everywhere in the New Testament. I found that to be true. Hopefully uh, the people of Parkway have also found that to be true as we've seen it in Ephesians a few years back, in Romans last year, now in 1 John. What makes this doctrine particularly profound as we've talked about, this doctrine of union with Christ is that it is the fountainhead from which all other blessings flow to you as a believer. Your justification Your sanctification, your adoption, your redemption, all of it, every jot and tittle of hope for you is laid up in Christ. And so it's yours by virtue of your union with Christ. So as elect believers, as beloved children, we have been identified with him at every stage of his redemptive work. So Galatians says you have been crucified with Christ. Colossians says that you have died with Christ. Romans says that we are buried with Christ. Ephesians says that we were made alive with Christ and raised up with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Why was it that I was delivered from the danger in the waters of the Nile? Why was I transported safely through these various threats of drownings and hippos and crocodiles and Germans? Because I was in the boat. As long as I was in the boat and that boat was safe, I was safe. Likewise, as long as you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, then you are as safe as Christ himself. If you are in Christ, you are as safe as Christ himself. That's union with Christ. That's what it means to be in him. Now look at this last phrase. He is the true God and eternal life. Here's the question that I want to ask here. Who is John talking about here? Is he talking about the Father or is he talking about the Son? Grammatically, either could work, uh, but which one is he referring to? The pronoun could technically refer to either, but I think that John is actually referring to the Son here, to the Son of God as the true God and eternal uh, life. And if I am right, this is one of, if not the most explicit reference in the entire uh, Bible to the deity of Christ. That said, even if I'm wrong, and this particular phrase uh, doesn't refer to the Son, but rather to the Father, that doesn't mean that the Son isn't God. We still have ample other passages that demonstrate the deity of the Son. 
In other words, beware of this tendency that we might have to have our entire theology of a particular doctrine rest upon a particular one or two proof text. Most doctrines are not established on the basis of just one or two proof texts, but rather on this glorious tapestry of interconnected texts, dozens and dozens of them, and such is the case with the deity of Christ. Even if this passage isn't the best proof for the deity of Christ, we certainly see that in Colossians 1 and in John 1 and in Hebrews 1, basically all of the ones. But I do think that this particular passage is one of the most explicit references in the entire New Testament to the deity of Christ for a few reasons. First off, because the nearest grammatical referent is to the Son. Typically, a noun is going to modify the nearest uh, related noun, which in this case is not the Father, but Jesus Christ, the Son. That's the first reason. The second reason, that seems to be the preferred interpretation for most of church history. That was the way that the early church uh, fathers took it in their fight uh, against the ancient heretic Arius. That's the way that Luther and Calvin and most of the reformers took it. That's the way that most modern uh, scholarly evangelical commentaries take the passage. So that's the second reason that kind of the flow of Christian uh, interpretation has lent itself in that direction. But third, it also provides this fitting bookend to the beginning of the book. We're at the end of the book, but if we think back to the beginning of the book, there are these bookends. 1 John 1, 1 through 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So when we started the book, we, we drew attention to the overlap, all of the allusions, the overlap in imagery between uh, 1 John and the Gospel of John, in particular in regards to their beginning. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is God in one sense, in regards to essence or being, but the Word is with God in the sense of the Son is with the Father in regards to their distinction of Person. So you see unity, but you also see diversity or plurality, and that's the idea of the Trinity. And so we see echoes of that same imagery in 1 John, not only in the beginning, but now at the end. So it forms these bookends. So the, the book begins by emphasizing the message of eternal life manifest in the Son of God. And now the book ends by emphasizing the message of eternal life manifest in the Son of God, because that is the fundamental idea of 1 John, that it was written that you might know that eternal life is found only in the Son. There is no being in God. There is no being in the Father. There is no uh, having no saving relationship, no redemptive relationship with God apart from the Son, apart from Christ Jesus. Let's keep going. Look at this final verse, 1 John 5, 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the final verse of 1 John, which seems like a really strange way to end the book. When I was a kid, my parents gave me a list of chores. They never once at the end of it said, oh yeah, Jeff, bear in mind, keep yourselves from idols. 
This is a really weird way to, uh, to end this book. But what makes it kind of even more strange is that this is the first time in the entire book that John has mentioned idols. In fact, the word idol doesn't even appear at all in the Gospel of John. And we won't see it as we look at 3 John or 2 John. I don't know why I said those backwards. So what gives? Why does he bring it up now? Why does he talk about idols here? Well, in the previous passage, he just mentioned the true God. So what's the antithesis of the true God? Well, a false God. In other words, that's an idol. So that kind of makes sense, but I want to dig a little deeper here because I think there's something below the surface that is uh, worth spending some time developing. I want to do that by breaking this uh, particular passage up into two sections. The demand and the danger. The demand, that is that we keep ourselves, and the danger is idols. And let's take those in reverse order. So again, what's the danger? According to John, idols. Well, what does John mean? Why does he give a warning about idols here when he hasn't mentioned idols before in his gospel or anywhere else in this book or in 2 John or 3 John? What kind of idol is he referring to? Well, there's three different ways that you can kind of think of idols that you see throughout Scripture. Three different ways that you can understand the way uh, that this term is used. The first two you're probably much more familiar with, while the third probably not so much. You might think of them as idols of the hand, idols of the heart, and idols of the head. Idols of the hand, idols of the heart, and idols of the head. So the first is obviously easiest. What is an idol of the hand? Those are easy. Those are those wooden or golden or other uh, uh, stone figurines that you literally fashion with your hands. And they're said to resemble or to represent or in some cases even house a god. And so you worship them. This is the most common usage of the term idol in the Bible. But it's probably the least common in most of our experience, unless maybe you grew up in a religion like Hinduism that actually has these physical idols. Very few of us have actually seen or been around a lot of actual physical idols in this sense, even though idolatry is very much a part of each of our lives. So instead, we're much more familiar with this second way that you can use the term, and that is idols of the heart, not just a physical object, but also a spiritual desire. Now, this doesn't mean what some people often take it to mean, which is that everything or anything that you love is an idol. Sometimes we use the word that way. That's super misleading and incorrect. Idolatry doesn't consist in loving something too much, but rather in loving something in the place of God. For example, I love my wife, but that doesn't make her an idol. In fact, God commands me to love my wife, and God doesn't command me to have idols. Right? There's literally never a time, if I were doing marriage counseling for someone, there's never been a time where I've looked at someone and said, the problem is you just love your spouse too much. They might not love God enough. They might love their spouse in the place of God, but the problem isn't that they love their spouse too much. That's absurd. By the way, we have a blog on this whole idea of the false way that we kind of view this, uh, this idea of idols of the heart. It's called the idol of idolatry. I'd encourage you to, uh, to read that. 
So an idol of the heart isn't just something we love, but something we love in the place of God, something that in our affections is a substitute for God. So Colossians 3 says that covetousness is idolatry. So in this sense, we can idolize work or success or power or sex or money or whatever it might be. In fact, Calvin says that we are a perpetual forge of idols. We are little idol factories. We're constantly cranking out new things to place our hope and our trust in rather than trusting in God and his sovereignty and goodness and mercy. So that's the first two ways to think of idols, the two ways that we're probably most familiar with, idols of the hand and idols of the heart. Now, if you were to ask the Apostle John, should we avoid idols of wood and stone? And should we avoid these idolatrous lusts and cravings and desires? He would say, yep, absolutely we should. But I don't think that's the particular danger he's concerned with here in this particular passage. Instead, I think he's more concerned with what we might call idols of the head. To demonstrate that, we need to remember the context. What's the immediate literary context? We just talked about that a second ago. John has just referenced the true God, the true God. And as we mentioned, what's the opposite of the true God? A false God, and that's an idol. But why does he mention false gods at all? Well, let's consider a little bit of the larger context and indeed the historical context. Bear in mind, we've talked about this a number of times as we walk through 1 John, that there was this historical context of there uh, being false teachers that had infiltrated the church and that had caused a schism within the church. They had promoted these false teachings and, and eventually they had left the church and divided the church. How so? By their false teaching, by their false doctrine, by their heresy. They denied that Jesus was the Christ. They denied that he was the son of God. They denied in some sense his crucifixion and his resurrection. In short, they denied the gospel and they distorted God. They exchanged the true God for some false God of their own imagination. So I think that is the particular danger that John is exposing here in this passage. Not just the danger of a physical idol or loving something in the place of God, although we should be aware of those, but instead he's warning us about the danger of something that we might not think is all that dangerous. And that is the idol of worshiping any false depiction or thinking of God wrongly through doctrinal distortion. In other words, the idol of the head is heresy, false teaching. Throughout the book of, uh, of 1 John, John gives us these warnings. He warns us of one danger after another, but the biggest threat that he constantly comes back to is false teaching. So in this book, idolatry doesn't consist so much of physical depictions of the divine image, but rather doctrinal distortions of the triune God. C.H. Dodd says this, by idols, he, that's John, means not only images of the God, but all false or counterfeit notions of God, such as lead to the perversions of religion against which he has written. So I think the primary danger that John is concerned with is heresy. It's heterodoxy. It's falsehood. It's theological error. Not minor differences in eschatological positions, but major perversions of the nature and character of God that so obscure the gospel as to offer no ultimate lasting hope. 
By the way, if you wanna know why idols of the mind are so singularly and pervasively dangerous, it's because that what is uh, imagined in the mind is eventually treasured in the heart and then fashioned with the hands. There's this trickle-down effect uh, and idols of the hands and idols of the heart and idols of the head are all interrelated. As our minds are given over to futility, so our hearts follow and soon after that, our hands and feet do as well. By the way, that's the flow of idolatry that you see in the opening chapter of the book of Romans. In Romans 1, we see man is given over first to a depraved mind that then leads to distorted desires, which brings out sinful deeds. You have this idol in the head that then becomes an idol in the heart, that then becomes an idol of the hands. But it begins with the mind. So the idols, the false gods that John is concerned with are these heretical distortions of the true God. Distortions like those who had left and divided the church in John's day, but also caricatures like the God that was painted by heretic, uh, the heretic Arius in the early church who taught that Jesus was created and not creator. And also misrepresentations of God, like that of the modern cults and Islam and so forth. So that's the danger. Physical idols, of course. Spiritual idols, no doubt. But more so than that, doctrinal distortions. That's the danger that he's warning us against. And what's the demand in light of that? He says, keep yourselves, guard yourselves, protect yourselves. In other words, in light of this danger, you have a responsibility. And the graver the danger the greater the responsibility. Let me give you an illustration of this. This past weekend, we set up an inflatable pool uh, in our backyard. And, uh, and so we spent a lot of time just frolicking about in, uh, in the pool with my son and, uh, and my daughter. And, uh, and so uh, the only problem was that this pool, as all pools tend to do, uh, kind of uh, uh, enticed bugs to come and join us there in the pool. So it wasn't merely my son and my daughter, but it was also mosquitoes and flies and wasps and yellow jackets and all of these sorts of things. Now, some some of you may recall, my daughter doesn't like bugs. I told the story before how she didn't want to watch A Bug's Life because she doesn't like bugs. And so anytime there would be a bug in the pool, she would jump out of the pool and refuse to get into the pool until I would take care of it. And so I would tell her, there's, there's nothing to worry about. It's going to be okay. Could some of those bugs hurt her? Sure, there were some wasps in there. There were some yellow jackets that I had to actually fish out with a net. And yet she's been stung before, and so we know she's not allergic. So there is some sort of danger, but it's just not a very great danger. And so what did I tell her? Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. Come on in. Now contrast that with the, the picture again of being on the Nile. Would I tell my daughter, you know what? Jump in. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Of course not. Why not? Because there's so much greater danger from crocodiles and hippos than there are from mosquitoes and wasps. And that's the point that I think we're supposed to get from this text. Heresy is not like a mosquito bite. It's not even like the sting of a wasp. Heresy is like being ripped apart by the jaws of a crocodile as it plunges you below the water for a death roll. 
Unless you understand that, unless you understand, unless you sense and feel how grave this danger actually is, you will never actually sense the gravity of applying this command to keep yourself. So John warns us of this grave danger and he gives us this important command that is that we keep ourselves from idols. But how do we do that? How do we keep ourselves? Well, it's the same way that we keep ourselves from crocodiles. Not by jumping into the river and attempting to swim to shore, but rather by staying in the boat. So speaking of boats, I want to share uh, another story involving boats as an illustration for how we are to keep ourselves from idols. It's an illustration we've used before, but it's been uh, a while. Some of you may remember from high school English or something like that, the story of Odysseus. He's this legendary hero of Greek mythology. And in one of his adventures, Odysseus learns that he'll have to pass by the island of the Sirens, who are kind of like mermaids. Think of the Starbucks logo under your misspelled name. Those are kind of like sirens, these beautiful enchantresses who lure sailors to their deaths by song. So they sing these, uh, these beautiful songs and you can't resist it. No mortal, in fact, can resist the sirens. And so the moment they would begin to sing, you would be enticed and lured and tempted toward the island. And Odysseus is forewarned that he has to pass by this island. He knows that he has to pass by. He knows that no one could possibly resist. And he also knows that all who pass by perish because of this temptation. So he hatches a plan, and it's a brilliant plan. He tells his crew to tie him to the mast so that he can't possibly escape, and then he has each of his crew members take some wax and put it into their ears so that they can't hear. And so as they approach the island, the, the sirens begin to sing, but Odysseus's crew is undisturbed because they can't hear. Odysseus, meanwhile, is violently raging against those, uh, th- those uh, tethers, those bonds, as he's uh, tied there to the mast. He's violently trying to free himself so that he could pu- swim to the island. He resists, but begrudgingly, against his will, because he's unable to, get to, to break loose of the bonds. And once they're safely past the island and out of earshot, the sailors untie him and he regains his sanity. Now consider this text this morning with that illustration in mind. Keep yourselves from idols. Some of you will think that the best way to do that is kind of like what Odysseus did, tethering himself to the mask. You don't necessarily like it, You don't want to do it, but God commands it, so you'll begrudgingly obey. You might believe certain truth, but you don't really treasure it. You might do some active obedience. You'll come to church, or at least watch it online for now. You'll read your Bible. You'll do whatever it is, but it's half-hearted. Now, don't get me wrong. It's better to obey for the wrong motivation than to not obey at all. Half-hearted obedience is better than actual disobedience. But that's how some of us think that we should keep ourselves from idols or how we should mortify sin or uh, some other response to God's command. We're just gonna roll up our sleeves, we're gonna pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we're gonna white knuckle obedience it. The problem with that is that it doesn't work. 
Even if you manage to douse the fires of lust, for instance, you merely stoke the embers of pride and self-sufficiency. As a result, you're either going to be crushed by the weight of failure or you're gonna boast in the pride of your success. That's the inherent nature of legalism. There is no winning. You just end up trading one sin for another. So what are we to do? If the way of Odysseus is not the way that we resist the sirens, well, at least one other mortal survived the sirens in Greek mythology. His name was Orpheus, not Morpheus like in the Matrix, but Orpheus. And Orpheus was a singer poet, kind of like our own Tim Hollis, but taller. And, uh, and he, that's Orpheus, not Tim, also had to pass by the island of the sirens. But here's where the stories begin to diverge. Because he begins to pass by the island and the sirens begin to sing. And all of a sudden, his crew begins to furiously, violently row toward the island. But Orpheus doesn't reach for wax and he doesn't reach for rope. Instead, Orpheus reaches for a musical instrument. He reaches for a harp and he begins to play it. And he plays the sweetest and the most beautiful and the most lovely tune that his men had ever heard in their life. He begins to play a song so sweet and so lovely that suddenly the song of the sirens was drowned out. And the men returned to their senses. They had no desire for the melody of the mermaids because they were so intoxicated because of the surpassing beauty of the music being played within their very own boat. And I think that's the way that you keep yourselves from idols. By being reminded that the true God is greater and he's stronger and that he's altogether better than any false god. It is that understanding, it is that affection which will compel, which will entice, which will drive you to read scripture, to study theology, to pray, to sing, to love others, to engage in deep community, to flee sexual morality in all of the other ways that you fulfill the commands of God. As you fulfill the commands to keep yourselves from the idols of the hands and heart and head. So the way that you keep yourselves from being lured by and loving false gods is by by being overwhelmingly infatuated with the one true God revealed in Jesus Christ. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity made incarnate for us and for our sin. So 1 John holds out this promise that in the Son of God alone is found peace and joy and hope and assurance and comfort and every other grace. And it also issues a warning that all other so-called gods, all other idols can never actually satisfy. So to Christ alone be the glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the book of 1 John. I thank you for the past uh, eight months or so that we've been in this book as we've uh, had an opportunity to immerse ourselves in it. And I pray Lord, that you would use it to encourage your people, that you would use it to comfort those who uh, need comfort, that you would use it to convict those who need conviction. And for all of us, you would use it to bolster our love for you, to remind us of the glory of being in Christ, in your Son, united to you, that we might love and treasure the coming of your Son and eagerly await his second advent. 
we love you and we're grateful that you love us. And so we pray uh, for your help in our lives with hope and expectation in Christ's name. Amen.